Hey, Jeff. Hey, Aaron. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. I just have a tendency to be kind of monotone. I didn't used to be that way. Like when I was when I was in high school, I loved getting up in front of people. I had this voice that would carry really easily. And then somewhere along the line, I just started becoming quiet and boring. You became <laughs> a professor. That's what happened. That's probably what it was. There's something in the air or water here. <laughs> Hi, I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is Season 1, Episode 1, Finding Your Calling. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. Do you feel like you have a calling in life? Is there something that when you wake up each day, you feel like you were meant to do? If you don't feel like you found your calling, well, you're not alone. It's such a common desire and one that so many find unfulfilled that finding a calling has actually become a focus of scholarly research. My guest today is Jeff Thompson. He's a professor and a colleague of mine at the BYU Marriott School of Business and the George Romney Institute of Public Service and Ethics. Jeff's principal field of study is calling. He's fascinated by questions like, what makes a job a calling? How do we find our calling? Can everyone find their calling in life? I invited Jeff to join me for a conversation to answer these and other questions, and I guarantee that you'll find his insights to be fascinating and actually even surprising. To begin, I asked Jeff to tell me a favorite story about someone he knows who found their calling. This is what he shared. So the first that comes to mind is my friend, Dale Hull. He is an obstetrician by training, uh, was top of his game in the field. Uh, Everyone wanted their babies delivered by Dr. Hull. One day, though, uh, after a day of work, he was out in his backyard jumping on the trampoline to unwind, uh, pulled a backflip, didn't rotate far enough, landed on his head, uh, heard a snap and fell completely immobilized. Um, So as a doctor, I mean, he knew exactly what he was in for at that point. And he shares that he, you know, immediately thought, okay, here's the doctor I need to see. Here's the the therapy I need to pursue. I'll never deliver another baby. You know, I'll never be the husband and father that I've been. He really felt like he had a calling in life and it was ripped from him. Um, his, his story is pretty remarkable after that point. He pursued some very progressive, uh, unorthodox therapies that his insurance wouldn't cover, hired a full-time therapist, and gradually made some remarkable progress. And over a very long period of time, got to the point where he can walk with a cane, can function pretty normally, still doesn't have the manual dexterity to practice medicine. But uh, kind of the crowning moment was him being invited to pass the Olympic torch to Carl Malone in 2002. Um, the Salt Lake Olympics. Now, you know, when people hear about about Dale's story, of course, he starts getting a lot of uh, interest and he he received inquiries from people who wanted to know if there was hope for their loved one. You know, how, how did you pull this off? How, you know, is there hope for my child, for my spouse? 
all of that kind of led Dr. Hull realizing that he could still provide a great service to people by developing his own clinic. That has culminated in an organization called NeuroWorks, has a brand new state-of-the-art, really amazing clinic in Sandy, Utah. They see patients from all over the Western United States. When you talk to Dr. Hull now, he expresses a sense of gratitude for everything that happened, even though it was the most horrible thing you might imagine. He sees it as the experience that gave him a sense of what his calling really is. He's combined his medical expertise with a newfound expertise for administration and leadership, which has, uh, which has created a, a sense of passion for him that probably supersedes where he was as an obstetrician. I've had the chance to get to know Dr. Hull, and his story truly is heroic. But what does it teach us about a calling? I asked Jeff to explain why he chose to share this experience. When you're looking for a calling, I mean, all of the ingredients are in that story. It begins with having a, a talent or a unique gift that you're aware of and want to use. It begins with recognizing that there's a need for your talent just as Dr. Hull found a need for his expertise that he had gained through going through therapy himself. And then it's gained by your life experiences and how they shape you. Did you catch all three ingredients to finding a calling? This is what they were. First, having a talent or a unique gift that you want to use. Second, recognizing a need for your talent. And third, letting life experience guide you to using your talent. Now, Jeff is going to explain all of these for us in greater detail, but I actually want to dwell on the last one for a moment. Letting life lead you to a calling sounds pretty daunting if it has to be through a tragic experience like Dr. Hull's. Do all callings have to come from tragedy? Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, ironically speaking, it can help to experience adversity because it sort of, uh, you know, equips you with understanding that other people don't normally have. Um, but it, it's much broader than that. Um, callings really come um, from your unique life experiences as much as from your unique talents. Um, none of us go through the same experiences, the same trials and, and uh, uh, you know, the same roller coaster of life. And so a lot of time it's that uniqueness of the path that's brought us to where we are that, uh, that equips us to a particular calling. So it isn't tragedy necessarily that leads us to our calling, but simply the life experience that's unique to us. What do you describe sounded far more common than the kind of journey that Dr. Hall experienced? I pointed this out, and so Jeff had another story to share. Well, let me tell you a less uh, heroic-sounding story. I, I still think it's heroic, but it, it's something that maybe more of us can relate to. And this is a, a student of mine who had gotten his degree in psychology at the University of Utah and was just convinced that this was going to lead to a great career. But as he approached graduation, he realized he just he could not find a job with the psychology degree. And so he took whatever job he could. Uh, his girlfriend worked for the city and she got him an interview to be a groundskeeper. And as he describes the story, he kind of felt like, yeah, this is beneath me. You know, I almost have a psychology degree. But he sort of concluded, I'm going to make the best of this. I'm going to take pride in what I do. And he says, you know, I'm, I don't think the parks have ever looked better than when I was whacking the weeds. Well, he, then he graduated 
couldn't find a job and someone from the city came to him and said, hey, we've been watching you. You've got a great work ethic. We've got a job for someone to be a meter reader. Um, you know, it's tons of walking, <laughs> but, uh, but would you like this position? He had no other alternatives. So he thought, okay, I'll be the best meter reader I can be. And he did that for, I think, six months or a year. And then eventually, uh, because now he was part of the, a, a public utility in the city, he uh, was offered another position that was an administrative role in the organization. It was very low level, but he once again decided, okay, I'll throw myself into this. That led to other opportunities. And as, as he talked to me about this, he said, and never in a million years would I have thought that my dream was to be the director of a public utility. Now, that's, that's what I'm working for. He said, I've, I've found some, a place that uses my skill. My psychology training still applies. I'm learning new techniques that I find I'm very good at. And I'm really invested now in building my community and making it a better place. So he found his calling in maybe the unlikeliest of ways. If you're like me, you are relieved to know that the satisfaction of a calling doesn't require something glamorous or heroic. I mean, after all, we can't all be founders of an incredible nonprofit fixing people's spinal injuries and also along the way carrying the Olympic torch. This second story tells us that finding a calling is actually much more common than we realize. Listen to how Jeff describes it. And this story to me is much more representative of what I see in most people when they find a sense of calling. It may not be glamorous. It may not be something that ends up splashed in the newspaper, but it's allowing life's experiences to lead you to the place where you can use your gifts to best serve others. And for most people, it comes as a surprise. A surprise. We generally think of surprises as good things. The waiting and anticipation are part of the fun, but finding a thing that you love to do, that's not something you want to wait around for. Describing a calling as a surprise makes it sound like finding your calling just comes down to luck, to serendipity. If that's part of finding your calling, is it even possible to be deliberate in the way you find it? Yeah, great question. I'll go back to the story of my student there because uh, there was something I mentioned a few times that's really key. And that is with each opportunity, he decided to do his very best to make it something he could take pride in and frankly, something that he could use to serve other people. Mm. And, and that is really the key ingredient to be on a path to a calling. It's not waiting around for your dream job to land in your lap. I don't even believe there is such a thing as a dream job. Rather, it is saying, okay, here's where life has put me. How can I use my very best gifts and talents to make things better for other people? And when you adopt that sort of approach to work, two things happen. First, you start to realize what you are good at and what you love. You get, much, you get in tune with it much faster if you're investing yourself. And secondly, other people notice that and they can open opportunities to guide you where you fit. That's something that we so often forget. When we end up in a job that feels like a bad job, our tendency is to withdraw and kind of do the minimum. I fell into that trap as a young employee. Um, but that's precisely what to do if, you're, if you don't want to find your calling. So it is uh, striving for excellence and seeking to serve in the best way you can wherever life has placed you. What Jeff just shared gives a much deeper meaning to the third ingredient in his list, the idea that we need to let life's experiences guide us. 
it's not something passive. Instead, it's taking each moment or opportunity and giving it our best. And not just our best effort, but the best of our talents and abilities. We have to show up in a way that reflects what we're especially good at. But what if we don't know what that is? So many of us feel like we don't have any special talents or abilities, that there's nothing that makes us stand out. Jeff is adamant that that's not true. He's convinced by his research that everyone has some special skill. The trick is just knowing how to find it. And he knows the first place to look. Yeah, I have this conversation so often. Um, (laughs) You start with childhood. And my first question will always be, what did you play when you were a child? When, when no one was telling you what to do. I mean, in, in childhood, it's like the, the most organic expression of our natural self. And most of our gifts manifest themselves in some way in childhood. So I, I think the challenge with finding your gift is that we overlook the ones that come natural to us because it feels so naturally, we don't even get it, give it credit for being a, a talent. It just seems like something we want to do. And I, I, I do think childhood is, is like the easiest place to discern that. I hope this insight helps you see what your unique talents are. If you're not sure what they are, then they're probably hiding in plain sight, even in something as simple as your childhood. Jeff went on to recommend also the idea of talking to others who know you well. Ask them what you're good at. He promises that a conversation like that will often surprise you. And now for a word from our sponsor. Leading an ethical career can sometimes feel like navigating through a wilderness full of pitfalls and other dangers. Having good intentions isn't enough. What you need are ethical skills. The Business Ethics Field Guide leads you through the trickiest of ethical challenges. Based on extensive research involving hundreds of dilemmas faced at work and written by authors with decades of experience, the book guides you through the 13 most common ethical dilemmas that people face. It gives you the expertise and tools you need to navigate them safely. But more than just keeping you safe, it also trains you to be an ethical leader that others can follow with trust and confidence. You can find the Business Ethics Field Guide at Amazon, Apple Books, Audible, and at MeritLeadership.com. So, if you know what you're good at, and you find where to put it to use, then what can you expect from it? After all, having a calling reflects a deep desire to find personal satisfaction in our work. So success in finding it must be a source of constant bliss, right? Well, actually, there's something much deeper going on. So I I think it's really important in answering that question to get to a definition of calling because I I, I don't believe that it means what most people think it means. (laughs) If you listen to um, sort of popular media today, and there's a lot of dialogue about finding your calling in life, people talk about it like a, a dream job a destination. Um, you know, I finally get to where I meant to be and now I'll be happy for the rest of my life. Yeah. That's really a distortion of what a calling means. And the concept goes way, way back clear to the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther described a calling as an obligation we have to use our gifts, our talents, uh, to help and bless other people around us. And that idea of calling's been 
been lost, been distorted to something that's very self-serving, self-gratifying. And in my research on this topic, what we found is the people with the deepest levels of satisfaction, like, uh, you know, sort of several standard deviations out on the satisfaction scale are working in jobs that feel like a duty and an offering to other people and not something that is as self is necessarily self gratifying. It's gratifying, but that's not the point of it. Um, this, the gratification comes as a byproduct of dedicating themselves to something worthwhile and important. A calling is a duty and an offering to other people. I love this insight. It's not about personal gratification, it's about contributing to a higher purpose. One of my favorite things about Jeff's research is where he looked for insights into calling. Instead of looking to careers with high prestige or rich financial rewards, he and his co-author, Stuart Bunderson, looked to zookeepers to better understand what it means to have a calling. It turns out that they are a group especially motivated by their work as a calling. The experiences of zookeepers, in fact, helped answer a pressing question that I had for Jeff. What if your calling doesn't pay the bills? Yeah, there are cases where fulfilling what you believe is your calling is not going to be financially rewarding. And uh, the zookeepers are kind of an extreme case of that. And despite the fact that it's a hard job, it's smelly, it's exhausting, it can be dangerous, you don't make any money, you don't get any recognition, you know, all those things that we attribute to job satisfaction, despite all that, their satisfaction with their work is off the charts. Um, they have this deep sense of fulfillment. And for them, that is worth the financial sacrifice they make. Otherwise, they wouldn't stay. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to say that, you know, once you found your calling, you just need to accept the, the a vow of poverty. Because for most of us, our calling manifests itself in many different ways. Um, I don't believe a calling is a destination. I don't believe there's a dream job. So if you're doing something that feels like you're calling, but it's not paying the bills, the, the goal should be to find another place that's or another application of those skills that may be uh, may allow you to provide for your family in the way that you want to. Most of us are not locked in. Zookeepers, in a way, are lucky because they have a very crisp, clear idea of what their calling is. But in a way, they're unlucky because being able to manifest that gift for them is fairly narrow. For the students that I teach, their skills are generally based on interpersonal effectiveness being able to organize collective action, being good communicators. And those sort of skills are really, really portable. And so I think most people can find their calling in many different places. This last comment by Jeff made me feel like a calling really is something that everyone can find. But for whatever reason, finding a calling still seems like such a rare thing. I asked Jeff if a calling is really just something that comes to a lucky few and not to everyone. Um, a strong no. <laughs> on, well, that's on a that. relief. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's one of the great distortions uh, that comes with this modern definition of calling of finding a dream job because that kind of sets you up for saying, you know, you got to be lucky. If I don't land the right job out of college, how am I ever going to get to my dream job eventually? And so when we view calling in that way, it does kind of make it like a fairy tale, you know, are you, are you the lucky one that, that found your Prince Charming and, you know, and had, had your happily ever after because human beings are 
infinitely varied in what they're good at, that means that everyone, every, every human on the planet has some capacity that's unique. And coming to terms with, coming to appreciate one's own unique capacities uh, means that everyone uh, should be able to find a unique path to contribute to the world around them. I'm excited to share two last insights that really hit home with me. First, I asked Jeff how he can spot a person who has found their calling. I mean, after all, he is a world expert in this. To answer my question, he referred back to the story about Dr. Hall. When he tells his story, he always ends by saying, I'm grateful that this happened. I can look back at all of these circumstances and feel a sense that I'm, I'm, I'm lucky, I'm, I'm blessed, uh, life has been good to me. That doesn't mean that every moment is fun. Zookeepers suffer. They sweat, they bleed, you know, they, they hurt for their animals. And, but it's not, it's not that it's a calling in spite of those things. In a way, it's a calling because of those things. Because we're, we're willing and, and, and even in some cases eager to make personal sacrifice because the end is so important. I love the idea that a calling creates a sense of gratitude in a person. If you're unsure about your calling... That strikes me as an especially helpful guide. What work would you be grateful to do? I mentioned that there were two final insights that really stood out to me. The second was an answer to my question, what does the world look like when everyone has found their calling? And his answer completely surprised me. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think... Let me put it this way. I can't envision a world where everyone is currently in their calling because, as I said before, calling is not a destination. Mm. I'd like to think of it more as a world where everyone is striving for their calling, who are like in search of the best place to use their gifts. And the journey is important. I look back on my career. I spent a year and a half in a corporate environment that just that it, it slaughtered my soul. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was really, really unhappy. But I look back on that now and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I learned so much about myself and who I need to be. So I'm, I'm not sure I really envision um, a, a perfect world where everyone has landed in their calling. Rather, I think the, the richness of calling comes in the search for who I'm equipped to serve. And if everyone is doing that and growing toward a deeper sense of calling, that's a pretty good world. The richness of calling comes in the search for who I'm equipped to serve. What a powerful insight. Having a calling, it turns out, is not a destination. It's a way. It's a way of using what life gives you each day and improving it with your unique talents. I think this means, when it comes to your calling, that there's no getting there. There's no finally making it. Even if you're in a job that you love, if you stop searching for ways to uplift others through your talents, that job will no longer be a calling. Your calling reveals itself in how you work, not just in what you do. Many thanks to Professor Jeff Thompson for sharing his wisdom with us in this episode. If you're interested in learning more about his research, I've linked to some of it in the show notes, along with other resources that can help you find and stick to your calling. If you want to keep up with how to help, 
consider subscribing to our newsletter, which you can find at how-to-help.com. You'll also find a link for it in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it's the beginning of a 12-episode season, and we're very excited to share it with you. So take a moment to give us a positive review in your podcast directory of choice. That helps other people discover the podcast too. And be sure to subscribe so you can automatically get future episodes. We have some fantastic episodes coming up. Next time, we're going to be talking with Dr. Abigail Marsh, neuroscientist and professor at Georgetown and a TED speaker. She's also the author of The Fear Factor, And we're going to be discussing her research into the neuroscience of altruism. Thanks to Merit Leadership, who sponsors this podcast, and to our production team, which included Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music. All of our music comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club. And if you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in the show notes. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Miller. And this has been How to Help.